I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 60th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that we can only pass God's test by implementing wisdom in our lives, disciplining our desires, and listening to the rebukes of life, fear God, and keep His commandments. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Twenty-third day of the month of January, a cold and frigid day in Lansing, Michigan. And our lesson this morning is our 60th part in this sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is the 13th and 14th verses in the 12th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in those verses, the Bible says this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Thank you very much for listening to our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. And then our last lesson, we chronicled the reign of King Solomon, who wanted to be a man of wisdom and persuasion rather than being a man of military force as was his father David. So Solomon applied to God in 1 Kings 3, 7, and 9, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And God responded positively 
in first Kings chapter three, verse 10 through 13. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. And Solomon showed his, his, his wisdom to all Israel. First Kings 4, 30-34 records, Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And in the major record of Solomon's wisdom, the biblical book of Proverbs, Solomon characterized wisdom as a woman. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1 through 9 record, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand at the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city at the entrance of the doors, to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, from the opening, and from the opening of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are, they are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Proverbs 9, 1 through 6 continues, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. And there is a reason that the wise Solomon characterizes wisdom as a woman. The analogy is that men should pursue wisdom with the same intensity that men pursue their most important relationship, that being their relationship with their wife. Genesis tells us that a wife was God's first gift to man, and then Proverbs tells us that she is his most important gift. Proverbs 31.10 tells us, Who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies? Proverbs 12 and 4 records, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. And since the wise Solomon equates the value of a virtuous wife 
to precious stones and makes the excellent wife synonymous with the symbol of a man's leadership over his domain, Solomon makes the analogy that a man should pursue wisdom with the intensity that he pursues this most essential and precious person in his life. This is true because, as Proverbs 31 and 12 records of the virtuous wife, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. But wisdom and a virtuous wife are the eight, both wisdom and a virtuous wife are the agents of a man's success. Foundationally, God tells us in Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And there can be no question in every empirical measurement of success in life, married men do better simply because by design, a man needs a woman to help him and to take care of him. The record indicates that left to their own devices, men will be less healthy, wealthy, and wise because marriage and family is the laboratory that God has designed for us to learn the world. And I can tell you for a fact that I learned more information in order to guide my son than I did for myself. God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse six, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And why does God tell us to obtain a heart knowledge of his word? Deuteronomy six and seven tells us, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And that which we teach generally sticks with us more persistently than that which we learn simply for ourselves. The preacher is generally the most knowledgeable man about the scripture, not because he is the smartest man, but simply because he does the most teaching of the scripture to others. It's simply a matter of repetition. But in God's economy, a man cannot maximize the father and child relationship outside of wedlock with his wife because a large part of the man's teaching must be done by example. Thus, if a man is not wed to his wife and an active part of his family, a man's influence on his son is diminished and his ability to learn and teach the word of God is compromised. So the acquisition of a virtuous, excellent wife is analogous to the acquisition of wisdom because it is by the influence of the wife that a man acquires his wisdom. As our takeaway point indicates, God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. And a virtuous wife's influence is not just the fact that she brought the children into the world. Proverbs 31, 26, 28, and 29 tell us, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. 
So the truly virtuous wife is wise in her own right. Proverbs 14 and 1 says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. And I hope that it is obvious that when Solomon says the wise woman builds her house, he is not talking about the construction of the physical structure of the domicile, but rather the emotional intellectual development of the family. Proverbs 19 and 14 tells us, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. The word prudent describes someone that is able to judge correctly in practical matters, is discreet, circumspect, and sober. So as men look for that virtuous woman to wed, it is best if their interview covers these practical points rather than the more superficial, superficial physical attributes, which will not be nearly as attractive when wisdom is required as they are when only the physical is at issue. And wisdom makes it clear that the physical is going to be at issue for only a short time daily. Proverbs 31 and 30 records, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And how is the fear of the Lord defined? Proverbs 37 and 7, Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 tell us, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. So a wise woman is not wise in her own eyes, meaning that she does not consider her own subjective desires and opinions to necessarily be wise. A wise woman's wisdom comes from her intention to depart from that which is evil, and evil is defined as that which is contrary to the commandments of God. And this is why the conclusion of the matter of wisdom is to fear God and keep his commandments. Any person's wisdom is much like that which I say about my sermons. When I give you my opinion in my sermon, you can ignore it because opinions are like behinds. Everybody has one. But when I tell you that which the Lord says, you would be wise to pay attention. So what you think, what your mother thinks, what your girlfriend thinks, and what anybody thinks should be compared to that which the Lord commands, and you should do that which God says if you want to make a wise decision. And the interesting thing about the fear of the Lord has to do with one of the attributes of fear. When you fear something, you normally do not do something, you normally do something that you would not ordinarily do to avoid the consequences of that which you fear. For example, on the expressway, I generally drive five miles per hour over the speed limit. But the other day, I found myself driving back home from the East Point Town Center during a light snowfall. The ramp speed is 55 miles per hour, but I found myself driving 45 rather than 60 miles per hour because I was afraid that if I drove 60, I might drive off the ramp. So fear makes us modify that which we would usually do or that which we desire to do. 
the admonition to fear God and keep his commandments is given to us so that we will modify that which we desire to do. Proverbs 15, 31 tells us, the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. And Proverbs 17 and three adds, the, rep the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. And since our journey here is to prepare us for our next life, the Lord gives us tests to see how well we can adhere to that which he tells us, even to the exclusion of our own desires. The first test was recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, which says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this commandment, from a human perspective, was certainly an unnecessary one. God could certainly could have created the garden so that the man and woman would not have to deal with this temptation. But God put the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to test their hearts, as Proverbs 17 and 3 tells us. And in this case, the man and the woman flunked the test, and their failure should be instructive for us. We can only pass the test by implementing wisdom in our lives, disciplining our desires to listen to the rebukes of life, fear God, and keep his commandments. We have to modify our propensity to act on our desires and rather comply with God's commands. And when we do so, we become wise. Our pursuit of wisdom begins with the learning of the Lord's commandments and recognizing the necessity to comply with them to the exclusion of our own desires, especially to the exclusion of our own desires. For example, Solomon warns us in Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, make no friendship with an angry man, and to a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. So we ought not be or associate with people that are generally angry. God tells us that anger is contagious and that by exposing ourselves to it, we make ourselves more prone to fall into its snare. Did you ever notice how a spouse that is angry with his or her spouse causes the anger in the home to escalate? The anger of one spouse influences the other spouse to become angry, and the anger spills over to the children, whether it exhibits itself in the children being angry or fearful. And God tells us to avoid anger because anger is generally a manipulative tool to justify disobedience to God. Although we make vows to love and cherish each other at the marital altar, we give ourselves permission to temporarily void our commitment to love our spouse by finding something about which to be angry. Thus, the purpose of anger 
is to justify disobeying God. Proverbs 29 and 22 says, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. Transgression is sin or disobedience to God. But Proverbs 16:32 tells us, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. And in a marriage, anger is almost always the wrong answer. The correct answer is understanding. Proverbs chapter two, verse one through five records, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom, and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, a certain wife had a favorite author. The author wrote a new book, and the wife found out that the author was coming to her town to participate in a book signing at the local Walmart from 7 to 10 p.m. Her husband usually got home from work about 6, and her plan was to make dinner, start feeding the kids a 3- and 1-year-old, and then leave as soon as he came home. She hoped that if she got to Walmart at 7 p.m., she could get her book signed and be back home in an hour or so. When her husband came home that evening, he wasn't too pleased with her plan. But I'll just be gone for an hour or so, said the wife. Just feed the kids and play with them, and I'll be back as soon as I can. Now, when the wife reached Walmart and went inside, she saw that the line for the book signing stretched up the aisle and around the wall of the huge building. Apparently, she wasn't the only one that liked the writing of the author. She got in line and began chatting with the women waiting near her. And about 8.30, she remembered her husband and called him. Dear, she said, the line is still pretty long. I'm not sure when I'll be home, but I hope it's pretty soon. Can't you come home now, said her husband. I would really like you to come home. Well, said the wife, I've waited for an hour and a half, and I would really like to get my book signed. Oh, all right, grumped her husband. Just get home quickly as you can. He hung up. The woman turned to her neighbor and went back to her conversation as the line crept along. Finally, at 10 p.m., she reached the front of the line, chatted briefly with the author, had her book signed, and headed in the pilot for the parking lot to get into her car and go home. She was pleased with having the interesting conversation and getting her book signed, but as she drove, she began to dread having the fight with her husband that she knew was coming. I've had such a pleasant evening, she said to herself, and I don't want to spoil it by having a fight. But I'm entitled to have an evening out every now and then, and he shouldn't be mad just because I left him with the kids. They're his kids too, you know. But then, as she was speaking to herself, she realized that she was preparing an argument to give her husband. An argument would certainly fight, and she didn't want to have one. She thought to herself, what can I do to avoid a fight? And it dawned on her. 
She had a, a little yellow teddy in the closet that she rarely wore, and her husband really liked it. And when she reached the house, the lights were out. She entered quietly and checked on the kids who were asleep in bed. She snuck into her bedroom. Her husband was sleeping, so she eased into the closet, took off her clothes, put on the yellow teddy, and slipped under the covers. As, he, as she snuggled up next to him, he woke up and realized that he had a warm woman on his back. He turned, and before he could rebuke her, he smiled at the yellow teddy. And rather than arguing, they enjoyed an intimate evening, and there was no fight. He was cheerful the next morning when he went to work, and that afternoon he sent her a text message asking her if she had any more books that she wanted to get signed. Somebody told women that they need to challenge their husbands to get their husbands respect, and that the way to get that which they want from their husband is to try to argue him into it. Nothing could be further from the truth. God has given women a surefire way to get their husbands to do just about anything that they want. It's just not by conversation. Solomon sings in his song, the song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 6 through 10, Oh, how fair and pleasant you are, O love with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breast like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of his branches. Let now your breast be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Now, I posted my account of this episode on my blog at FamilyLifeBC.com and received the following comment. Sheila said, wow, I'm really disgusted with this article. What about the scripture that states, love your wife as yourself and be considerate as you live with your wife or consider others better than yourself? This selfish man feels entitled to have an attitude because his wife goes out to have a book sign. Your attitude is to have sex with him to avoid an argument. If I was her, I would simply got in bed and reminded him that this is a partnership. There's no need to argue, and there's no need to put on a teddy to, to have men on up to their family obligations. I would hate to go to your church because it appears to me that you are another example of men who suppress the church for their own self selfish desires. And I responded to Sheila, but think about it for me. Why do you come to the conclusion that it is wrong for a wife to make love to her husband? Is it that you consider a wife making love with her husband to be a form of oppression? If it is your opinion that wives making love to their husbands is a form of oppression, then may I ask, with whom would you prefer that husbands make love? 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 tells us, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, 
and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's just my opinion, but you may want to rethink your hostility to wives making love to their husbands. So let us examine the question from the standpoint of wisdom. Of course, you all see and heard my recitation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, but let us examine Sheila's idea that it is oppression for a wife to have to make love to her husband. Let us ask ourselves, what are the husband's alternative for lovemaking if his wife finds it oppressive to make love to him? Well, the husband could employ a prostitute. That would certainly be a solution that would relieve the wife of her obligation of 1 Corinthians 7. Of course, it is possible that employing the regular services of a prostitute would be outside of the husband's budget. In this case, a husband might possibly relieve his wife of her 1 Corinthians 7 responsibility more inexpensive, expensively by delegating that responsibility to a girlfriend, which would also probably reduce the cost. I suppose that a man might even take a less expensive route, purchase pornography and relieve himself. Or, as a more comprehensive solution, the man might just consider his wife's reluctance as a breach of the marital vows, obtain a divorce, and marry a woman more in line with the word of God. And men often take this last solution after their children are grown. This solution is colloquially known as a midlife crisis. Now, there, those, those are the solutions of which I can think, but I'm open to any other alternatives that anyone might propose. And hopefully you can think of some that we can explore in our question and answer period today. But I hope that you see my point about wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 tells us, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And let me say that men do not actually have the right to break their wedding vows by employing a prostitute or getting a girlfriend. I only point out these solutions to spotlight the physical requirements of marriage and the void that it leaves when one of the partners decide to not meet their requirements. The only Christian solution left open to a man with a wife that breaks her vow to love, honor, and cherish is to endure her recalcitrance while trying to seduce her cooperation, unless the man can rationalize that a disdain for loving is a violation of the sexual immorality clause of Matthew 5.32 in which case he is justified to divorce his wife. But there is a good reason that God tells us to keep his commandments. You see, we have the propensity to figure out ways to disobey God because we lack the ability to see the perfect wisdom in God's plan. But we will find that if we simply obey God, the problems that we anticipate will not develop because God has tied our feelings to our actions. Rather than choosing to disobey God because we anticipate that we will not like the outcome of obedience, God tells us to employ wisdom by obeying him because our anticipation is incorrect. For example, in this case, Proverbs 25 and 24 tells us, 
it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Solomon lets us know that no man desires to live with a woman with whom he has to argue and contend on a regular basis. And since the wise woman in our episode did not want to be contentious with her husband, she prudently developed an alternative solution to contentiousness from her knowledge of God's word in 1 Corinthians 7. And as Proverbs 19 and 14 tells us, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And the reason that 1 Corinthians 7 is in the Bible is that God's plan to keep husbands and wives is that that is God's plan to keep husbands and wives from being contentious with one another. John 13, 34 and 35 tells us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this love that Jesus Christ talks about is not just intellectual, but physical as well. As John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came preaching the gospel, but Jesus' intellectual prowess was not his claim to fame. Luke 22, 39 through 44 tells us, Coming out, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when Jesus came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was praying from, for, for relief from his anticipated sacrifice on the cross. The cross experience was going to be painful agony. Jesus clearly did not want to go to Calvary, but he recognized that the pain and agony of the suffering on the cross was not to be compared with the glory of saving the souls of men from the penalty of their sins. And Jesus gave his life on the cross as God commanded. He died that Friday after suffering all the pain and agony that he anticipated. But since Jesus ignored his feelings and did the will of God, Early on that Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead. And, as Philippians 2, 8 through 11 tells us, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus Christ is our example. To comply with the word of God may not seem to be the best plan based upon our human perception, but if we believe in Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that God has thought out how we should behave with more wisdom and insight that we possess. And unlike the pair in the garden, we ought to trust God with our obedience and even with our very lives as did Jesus and follow God's instruction. And the wise Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom of Solomon, that we might be able to understand your commandments, and that we might be able to get past our own doubts and our own desires and conform our lives to that which you tell us to do in your word and help us to recognize that our wisdom does not supersede your wisdom and that our thinking is not superior to yours but that we will come out better if we listen to that which you say and conform our lives to your commandment because you have planned our lives out for us and put us in the position where we can do our best if we listen to your word. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.